0: I can honestly say I've never had anyone pray for my jokes before. Um, do they need prayer? I don't know. Uh, thanks, Pastor Peter. All right, I'll keep that in mind. All right, well, open your Bibles to Genesis 8. We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 through 11. Uh, we're almost there. We've got a couple weeks left to finish this series. But Genesis 1 to 11 has been called the first half of the Bible. You may be thinking, well, isn't the first half Old Testament, those first 39 books, Genesis to Malachi, and then the second half is the, the part written after Jesus came, Matthew to Revelation. Well, yeah, sure. But the reason why it's been called the first half of the Bible is Genesis 12 through Revelation 22 can't be understood without an understanding of Genesis 1 to 11. All the major themes of Scripture get launched in these first 11 chapters of the Bible. And one of the illustrations that I've been using for that is like a, a, a tune or a score in a movie. What, what a good movie producer will do with the score of the movie is they will connect themes of the movie to tunes in the score. So when you hear that part of the score come back, it reminds you of earlier in the movie when this happened or the evil character showed up. So you don't need to know, like, like if you hear this tune, everyone knows this one. da na Right? You don't need to see the shark to know he's coming. Because the tune tells you what's about to happen, and everyone's anxiety gets up, and oh, there's kids in the water, and that all happens. And so the same thing with Genesis 11, we start to get a sense of the score, and so as we see the themes popping up, and certain language and certain images come up, we know what the Bible is going to be telling us. And so today we actually get introduced to a new part of the score, a new tune in the soundtrack, and that's the tune of Covenant. Today's major theme is covenant. So keep that word in mind because we're going to get to that as the main idea today. But I want to do a quick recap of where we are, jump into our text. There's lots of explanation, but also lots of pastoral uh, application as well. So uh, we're in the middle of a big chunk of text, kind of a subsection in Genesis 1 to 11, Genesis 6 through 9, which is the account of Noah and the ark and the flood and all that's going on. We've broken this subsection into a few different weeks. Um, And so by recap, though, Genesis 1, God finished his work of creation, and then he looked around, he surveyed creation, and what he saw, he declared, this is very good, And then five chapters later, in Genesis 6, in a similar way, God surveys his creation. He looks around and he declares, based on what he sees, he says, everything humans think or imagine is consistently and totally evil. A lot happened in five chapters. Everything has been ruined. All that was very good has become consistently and totally evil. And so we're told God was grieved over what he saw. Humanity was on a path to destruction. They had ruined creation. They had ruined themselves. And it was only going to get worse. So God, in one sense, accelerated that ruin by bringing the flood to destroy and wipe out creation as it was. And we talked about last week how really, how that was accomplished was all he did was remove his spirit from creation. The spirit that had separated the waters of creation was removed and now those waters crashed back Together, everything with breath we're told died. That's God's breath. God's spirit was taken away from living things, and they died. The spirit that hovered over creation to bring order in the chaos was removed, and so the chaos came back. Yet God spared one family, the family of Noah, along with his uh, his kids, his wife. Pairs of animals, Noah built a boat, which was really a a little garden of Eden where animals and humans and and food and provision were all in, in one place together in peace, and God saved them from the chaotic waters. So last week, we left off where Noah and his family were still in the boat, but things were starting to calm down, and we pick it up in chapter 8, verse 1. Listen to how chapter 8 starts. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat, He sent a wind to blow across the earth, and the floodwaters began to recede. The underground waters stopped flowing, and the torrential rains from the sky were stopped. So the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth. After 150 days, exactly five months from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Two and a half months later, as the waters continued to go down, other mountain peaks became visible. God remembered Noah and sent a wind. This is another one of the tunes in the score of the Bible. Wind and spirit and breath are all the same word in Hebrew. And we are introduced in the second verse of the Bible that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of precreation. The chaotic darkness and disorder of precreation, the Spirit of God was there. And so the Spirit of God was participating in the ordering and in the separating of those waters. And so now here we've got this this uh, reboot of the world back to a state of pre-creation. And what does God do first? He sends a wind. He sends his spirit. He begins to breathe and the waters begin to recede in the presence of his spirit. New creation is beginning. And I think this is important for us to understand in our own lives. A lot of people experience a certain level of collapse in their personal world. In fact, most people have it happen multiple times throughout the course of their life. Your life was on a good trajectory. You look around, you observe everything in your world, and you say, this is very good. And then something happens. A dream gets crushed. You lose a loved one. You lose your job. You get a bad diagnosis. Somebody hurts you. And it felt like what was very good has now become evil or broken or utterly lost. But the pattern we see in Scripture is that all is required for new creation to come out of chaos and death is for God's Spirit to begin to move in your life, for God to, to begin to breathe, to pour out His Spirit again, to bring back a life into order and beauty and goodness again. God doesn't need good ingredients in order to turn something into a good product, All that's required for a situation to turn into something new is for God to breathe, for God to speak. When that happens, life begins. I don't want to oversimplify anything or minimize what anyone's going through. What I'm trying to say is for the Christian, there is always hope. There is always the potential for new life and something good to be brought out of something that's bad. In all things God is working for the good of those who love him. That doesn't mean everything always turns out fine, but God is using all things to create something good in you and through you. And it's we see this pattern starting even in the beginning here. Christians shouldn't always just be forecasting doom and gloom all the time. Oh man, the world's getting so bad. Everything's broken, all is lost. Christians are supposed to look at the world, and even in brokenness, we're supposed to see hope and possibility and new life. All it takes is the breath of God. All it takes is for the winds to begin to shift. When you forget, in this rea- when you forget this reality, when you forget that life is based on God's presence and his spirit moving, sometimes we then take things into our own hands, We think, well, God doesn't have our best in mind. God isn't doing anything. All is lost unless we do something ourselves. We need human initiative to solve this problem. And so what we do is almost exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they reached for the forbidden fruit. They said, God doesn't have our best interests in mind. There's something that we need to do here. There's something we need to grasp and take control of. So we'll take control of that. And what we've done is we've lacked trust in God's provision, taken matters into our own hands with a lack of wisdom, and we often make things worse. That doesn't mean there's no room for human initiative, but it needs to be spirit-guided, trusting in God's provision and his direction and his wisdom rather than our own. All it takes for something that's dead to come alive, something that's dark to become light, is for God's spirit to begin to to move. So the Holy Spirit was sent by God to blow across the waters of chaos and death and disorder to bring the world back into a place of new creation and new life. Let's read a big chunk. We're skipping down to verse 15, and we'll go all the way to 9-7. Then God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, and the small animals that scurry along the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. So Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives left the boat, and all the large and small animals and birds came out of the boat pair by pair. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed his burnt offerings, the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. All the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that still has the lifeblood in it. And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And if anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his image. Now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. Lots going on here, but the the main idea I want you to see is that as you read this passage, what we see is a, 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 a repeat and a reordering of creation that we saw in Genesis 1. The same things are happening. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. God spoke and things begin to happen. Animals of various kinds are released on the earth. Vegetation and food is given. The world is put into a rhythm of planting and harvest, hot, cold, summer, winter, day and night. God releases humans into the world and blesses them, says, be fruitful and multiply. He affirms that they're made in the image of God. That's all that talk about if someone kills a human, there's penalties and all that kind of stuff. They're made in the image of God. They have value. And then he gives the humans dominion over creation and responsibility to care for the creative order. So again, we're reading about... New creation. God, by his spirit, has rebooted the world. Noah and his family are the new Eden family. Noah is the new Adam, and they're starting again in the presence of God to bring about a new creative order. But notice something uh, in verse 21, which I want to read again. Listen closely. God said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. So we know that God cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. It was one of the penalties of the sin as as they moved out of the garden originally. He did that as he recognized humans um, are are living lives. They're they're walking away from him. They're bent toward evil. But here he says, I'm not going to curse the ground again and I'm not going to wipe out all human life again, even though I know... That their hearts are bent toward evil. Even though I know that even this Noah guy, he and his family are gonna screw this up again, I'm not gonna act the same way that I did when I sent the flood into the world. God admits that wiping out humanity is not a long term solution. God doesn't say, now that we're starting with this Noah guy, everything's gonna be fine. He actually says, I know it's gonna get messed up again. So I'm gonna make a promise that I will actually um, hold back from my temptation to wipe out these humans again when they start annoying me. He will pause his judgment. God is going to work with us even when we are bent toward evil. This is good news. You know why? Because when you and I mess up, when we totally blow it, when we make a promise to him and then do something completely different, when we completely mess up a situation, God's first reaction is not, I'm going to destroy you. God's first reaction is, we're going to work on this together. We're going to find a way to make this partnership work to continue to fulfill God's purposes in the world. See, God's original design was that he would partner with human beings. He would work with us to bring order and to bring stewardship to, the, to creation. That was his original design, and he has not given up on that. He wants to partner with us. So even when we mess up, even when our hearts are hard, even when they're bent toward evil, God has promised, I am going to work with them. We're going to figure out a way to make this happen. And so a lot of us still live under that fear that every time we mess up, God wants to squash you or do something nasty to you or or just punish you. But especially when you're in Christ Jesus, uh, Romans chapter 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's first reaction to you is not to want to punish you, but to work with you to bring about a good result into the situation, even if it's been messed up. You know, if we've seen that in our own lives. I've seen that in my life. I, I hope you've seen that in your life. When I mess up, God still works with me. God still walks with me. God, God gives wisdom and grace to get through and walk to the other side. We've seen this His faithfulness working in our church through brokenness and sin. There were people who thought APA was dead and gone. But what happened? God just started to breathe again. He poured out his spirit on us. And what we've seen is new life. God doesn't give up even when we mess up. He keeps working with us. And isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? There's always hope because God is committed to our good. Holy Spirit was rebuking me during worship because I was like, ah, it's going to be like a long weekend crowd. You know, everyone's going to be wishing they were outside at the beach. And you guys are pumped this morning. I love it. It's fantastic. If you look forward from Noah's day, you see uh, the history of his partnership with people. You see him do it over and over again. He finds ways to use flawed and imperfect and even downright terrible people to bring about his good purposes in the world. In the meantime, though, he transforms he redeems the very people that he has chosen with his life-giving spirit to become more and more like the image bearers he first designed us to be. He used Moses the stutterer. He used David the murderer and adulterer. He used Rahab the prostitute. He used Cyrus the pagan king and even spoke through a donkey. And If you've read the King James Version, you know what I'm talking about. You are not disqualified from being loved by God, blessed by God, used by God for good purposes, from having God's Spirit poured out on your life in order to have a new and more fruitful future than you did in the past. God is committed to you. He is committed to us. Then God makes this promise formal with a covenant. We were first introduced to the language of covenant the first time in the Bible in Genesis 6. But there God just promised he's going to make a covenant. Here he makes it formal. Verse 8 to 17. This is the last of our text for today. God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants, and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds. And I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Then God said to Noah, yes, this rainbow is the sign of the covenant I'm confirming with all the creatures on earth. God makes this covenant with Noah. He says, I will never again, pardon me, never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. So what's a covenant? This is a big word in the Bible. It's not necessarily a word that we use in modern language, but it is a major theme. And like I said, a tune that carries through the whole score of scripture. In fact, when we read the Bible, we're reading uh, really the tale of two covenants. The word testament, we think of Old Testament and New Testament. Testament is a synonym for covenant. We're talking about two covenants, two major covenants God has made with people. We don't typically use the word covenant in modern language, uh, unless you played Halo as a kid, but it's a different covenant. But the covenant, one definition is this, it's a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. A chosen relationship where two parties make binding promises to each other. Those those parties would make promises, but they would also call curses upon themselves if they broke the promise. The first covenant you probably made in your life, you might not have known it, but it probably sounded something like, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. That's kind of a formal covenant that you made as a kid. Basically, I'm making a promise, and if I break the promise, the curse is, you get to stab me in the eye. Kind of weird. But one of the traditions actually in the Old Testament, and you see this, um, I think it's in Genesis 15 with Abraham, is um, people would take animals and they'd cut them in half, and they'd put one half of the animal in one line and the other half of the animal in the other line, and they'd make this aisle to walk down. And then you'd make your promise, and you'd walk between the cut-up animals. And the promise is basically, if I break the covenant, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. So you walk down the aisle, made for very romantic weddings, walk down the aisle, and there's all these dead animals. Um, I'm, I'm sure they didn't use them in weddings. But that's the symbolism. If I break the covenant, this is the curse that is going to be on me. Covenants are different than legal contracts. Because covenants are more relational. They're about partnership and commitment, not just goods and services. A will is a legal contract. A marriage is a covenant. When you get married, you're not just making a legal commitment to someone, you're forming a covenant, a relational bond where there's more at stake than just possessions. Your Costco membership is a contract, your national citizenship is a covenant. Your mortgage on your home is a contract, but the commitment you have to the family who lives in the home with you is a covenant. A pastor's employment agreement is a contract, but my commitment to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a covenant. The Bible has lots of covenants, uh, sometimes just between individuals, sometimes between big groups, but the Old Testament has four major covenants that we read about. We, we're talking about the Noahic covenant, Uh, We also have the covenant with Abraham, which is called the Abrahamic covenant. He promised to give Abraham a son that would turn into a great nation. The second one is the Mosaic covenant, where um, this is the covenant with Israel, where God promised to give them the promised land and all kinds of blessing and success if they obeyed his law. And then he made the covenant with King David, or the Davidic covenant, that David would have a son who would be a ruler over the throne of Israel forever. So here in the Noahic covenant, it's interesting because God doesn't give Noah any responsibilities. God has no, or Noah has no responsibilities, and so there are no curses on Noah if he somehow does something to break the covenant. He can't break the covenant. God is the only one who has responsibilities and the only one who could be cursed if the covenant is broken. It makes it a covenant of pure grace. It's God making a promise with no strings attached Noah. So Noah gets all the blessings and God has all the responsibilities. You know, in my covenant with my wife, I have responsibilities to uphold to keep the covenant intact. And there are things that I can do, sins that I can commit that break that covenant. But Noah had no responsibilities in this covenant. In fact, God was basically saying, I know you're going to be evil, I know you're going to mess up, but I promise not to act like I did. When I flooded the earth. Even now, I think God is probably tempted. Don't you think? Don't you think God is tempted to just praise God? There is a covenant where He has promised, I'm going to work with you and I won't do that again. We don't need to fear God's retribution. He has made a covenant of pure grace. Covenants also have a symbol. The symbol of a marriage covenant is the ring, right? You you talk about how it has no beginning and no end, and so the love is endless and all that, yada, 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 and wonderful things. But you have... (laughs) She is sitting here. I love you, babe. (laughs) So the reason I wear a ring is because I want to remind myself regularly that I have made a covenant. And I want you to know that I have a covenant. So there's a wall, there's a barrier here, and there are boundaries, right? This is the sign of my covenant. The sign, uh, of, um, the sign of the marriage covenant is the ring. And by the way, like, I'm going to create an argument for some homes here, but, but men, wear your ring. Like, I know if you're at work and you, you, know, you work a labor job and you, you have risk of injury, like, that's fine, but wear your ring. I don't get it when guys don't wear rings. Wear your ring because you need to remind yourself and you need to remind people around you that you have made a covenant with your spouse. The sign of the covenant with Israel was circumcision. I prefer a ring, okay? There could be worse things. The sign of the covenant with Noah is the rainbow. Every time I see my ring, I'm reminded of my covenant with Rebecca. Every time God sees the rainbow, he's being reminded of his promise. But the rainbow presented here is not just a colorful arch in the sky. The language here is actually referring to a battle bow, a high-tech advanced weapon of war and death. God literally takes his AR-15 and hangs it up on the rack and says, I'm not going to touch that anymore. I'm not going to point it at you anymore. I'm done doing battle against humanity. The point of the covenant is this. God is trying to restore his relationship with humanity and bring us back to himself. That's the whole purpose because it's a relational agreement that he is making. He wants to restore the original relationship with us and bring us back to him. And of course, all of this is a prelude and a foreshadowing to the new and final covenant between God and humanity, the covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. In Noah, God says, I know humans are going to screw up, so I promise not to wipe them out. With Abraham, he promised a nation that through him, uh, that, that nation often wasn't a blessing, it was actually a curse. With David, David's sons eventually became evil kings, not wonderful kings over Israel. With Israel, they consistently rebelled and broke the covenant over and over again. In all these cases, God did not have a faithful covenant partner who would hold up their end of the bargain. And so God says, I'll do it myself. God takes on flesh and comes as the last Adam, the ideal image bearer of God to inaugurate a new creation. Jesus arrives and becomes the blessing of all nations that God promised through Abraham. Jesus comes and becomes the king after God's own heart to rule forever with justice. And Jesus comes with the fulfillment of every promise made to Israel. He's the temple, he's the priest. He's the sacrifice all in one. But along with fulfilling all God's covenant promises, Jesus also came to bear all our curses on the cross. See, Jesus walked through that aisle, and we didn't have to. Jesus walked through it, and he said, Not only will I fi- fulfill my end of the covenant, but I will fulfill your end of the covenant that you failed to live up, and I'll take on the curse. So Jesus was slaughtered when we should have been. Jesus was cursed when we should have been. Jesus hung on that cross when that should have been our place because he is a God of covenant. This is the new covenant, a covenant of pure grace. God takes on all the responsibility and we get all the blessing. All that's required is that we opt in. Through faith, we opt into this covenant and we say, yes, we agree that Jesus is Lord. Yes, we agree that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. It's a covenant of pure grace. And Jesus sits down with his friends in a meal that we celebrated earlier and he reveals to us the symbol of the new covenant. 1 Corinthians 11.25, this cup, is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Jesus was the faithful partner that we couldn't be, and now all the blessings of covenant with God are ours, even though we didn't deserve it. So when God hung up his battle bow, we should have seen the hint, because it was pointed at him. And he took the arrow that should have been ours. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and his blood was poured out as a sign of the covenant. Isaiah 54, verse 9 and 10. God says, To me this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken for my covenant of peace, or my covenant of peace be removed," says the Lord, who has compassion on you. We who are bent toward evil and rebellion, God has compassion on us and promises to send us a Savior to pour out His grace on us through Jesus, so that we could be restored and renewed in His new creation. Isn't that good news? That's the gospel we believe and the gospel we proclaim. And the gospel, I'll proclaim until my dying days, God has poured out his grace, a covenant of pure grace on us. We just need to opt in. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. I just want to invite you today, whether you've walked with Jesus for a long time or whether this is going to be something brand new for you today, to once again just confirm not not that we have a responsibility in the covenant the new covenant of jesus but to confirm that we want in confirm that that we want to receive the covenant promises and to confirm that we will trust in jesus to fulfill what he has promised to fulfill in our lives and that we will walk with him as noah walked with god as enoch walked with god we will walk with him to our dying breath when we get to be with him forever let's pray together join me just in your hearts father in heaven thank you so much that you are a God of covenant, that your desire is to form a partnership where our relationship can be restored and we can be brought into your home, into your heart, into your presence. God, all of us like sheep have walked away, gone our own way, we've strayed, we've wandered. But Lord God, you continue to pursue us and you have made promise after promise after promise to restore us, to care for us. Lord, we know that in our sin, uh, you have temp- I'm sure you have temptations, Lord, to just, to just do what you did in those days with Noah. But God, you have made a promise that you won't, but instead you will act with grace and mercy and patience and compassion. And we thank you so much for that amazing news. And Lord Jesus, we recognize that by the spilling of your blood, you formed a new covenant with us, a covenant of pure grace, where we receive all the blessings and you take our curses and you take all the responsibility. So Jesus, we just ask that you would apply all of that to us. If there's anyone here who, for the first time, needs to to make that step, to walk into that covenant and say, yes, I want a part of it, I pray in Jesus' name that by faith they would take that step today. And that each one of us, from this day forward, would walk closely with you, trusting in you and what you have for us. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I wanted to finish today with a celebratory song. We started the service with this song, and there's a part of the song that talks about the old being made new that what was old is now new and what was dead is now alive. I'm coming out of the grave of death, of sin, and an old way of living and I'm walking with Jesus under a new covenant, under a new way of living. And so just as a way to celebrate before you go and continue enjoying your long weekend, let's just lift our praises and lift our hands and lift our voices and celebrate what God has done for us in Christ Jesus.